Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. And right now is no exception. We've heard you listeners and know you're counting on us to keep the baking conversation going strong, even in uncertain times. So that's what we intend to do. Today, we'll see if the copycat Nama truffles from June and Tonic are as good as the Royce originals. And we'll introduce a breakfast treat listener Candy told us about. Finally, we'll take a deep dive into a classic Japanese sweet ingredient, bean paste. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. Andrea, do you remember last week in episode 180 when we talked about the milk bread and I told you the first time that I ate an entire loaf of bread within 10 minutes? (laughs) Uh, How could I forget? (laughs) (laughs) I think you have been experimenting around with a similar concoction. Is that right? Yes, and equally addictive. So, Uh uh-oh. In our first episode of Japanese Sweets Month, episode 179, I talked a bit about the Tangzong method versus the Yudene method. Yeah. With our Shokupan, we use the Yudene method. I really wanted to try something with the Tangzong method. A lot of our listeners have used it successfully. Mm-hmm. I went with King Arthur Flowers recipe for Japanese milk bread. I was a little nervous because I did not have one of the ingredients, which was either two tablespoons of King Arthur's special dry milk or two tablespoons of non-fat dry milk. Okay. But I contacted the baker's hotline, which is just still one of my favorite things to <laughs> you do. You love to do. I know. <laughs> You're always looking for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> and they said no problem because the actual dough recipe included a half a cup of whole milk. And so it was just fine to leave it out. Okay. So Got it's it. very similar to the method that we use for the shokupan. You start off by making your starter, your tangzong. And that is three tablespoons of water, three tablespoons of milk, and two tablespoons of flour. Okay. I think I mentioned the word tangzong translates to water roux, and that is a Mm -hmm. perfect description of this. Okay. You put those ingredients in a small saucepan, you whisk it, put it on low heat, and cook it until it gets nice and thick. That took about five minutes for me. And then you put it into a small mixing bowl and let it cool to room temperature. Mm -hmm. So the nice thing about this recipe is you don't need the overnight rise like we did with the shokupan. Got it. Okay. Yes. So you're ready to go and make bread that much faster. (laughs) Right. Which, you know, (laughs) if you've got an emergency and you need it. (laughs) The next step is to take your dough ingredients and mix them or knead them. Of course, I use my KitchenAid stand mixer. And so it's two and a half cups of bread flour a quarter cup of sugar, a teaspoon of salt, a tablespoon of instant yeast, half a cup of whole milk, one large egg, and then the quarter cup of melted unsalted butter. Okay. So you can see this recipe has way more butter than our shokupan did. And way more sugar. It has sugar. a whole egg. Yeah. yeah way more sugar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's very different. It's very rich. It's definitely one of those enriched bread doughs. Yes. I put it into my nine inch cast iron skillet and you know you let it 
rest, your first rise in the regular bowl, 60 to 90 minutes, Mm -hmm. and then you divide it into eight pieces and placed it, it said in your cake pan, but I did my cast iron skillet and let it do its second rise until they're all nice and puffy and touching each other. Oh. And then bake them for 25 to 30 minutes. I did a little egg wash on top of these. Oh my goodness. I mean, Stefan, hot rolls straight from the oven. Is there anything better? You know, Andrea, last week when we were reviewing the Shoku Pan and I said these reminded me of Hawaiian rolls, this sounds even more like that because it does have the enriched dough and it has a much sweeter dough. Is that what you were even more reminded of this week with with these rolls? You know, I didn't necessarily think of that. What it really reminded me of, and my husband even made the same comment, it reminded me of the Parker House rolls that I make oh. every year at Thanksgiving. I love that texture, that chewy texture. And there is a sweetness to those. Yes. And so it has the sweetness, but instead it has kind of that fluffy texture. I mean, these were amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I wisely doubled the recipe. So I did <laughs> two two pans of it because I just knew – I needed to give one pan away for a project that I was doing for a family. And so I was able to give one entire pan away, but I knew I'd need to be able to taste it myself. So both myself, my husband, and my daughter had one roll straight out of the oven. And then I put them sort of out of reach so they could continue to cool. And I put them in a sandwich bag and put them in the refrigerator because, again, I'm, I don't just want to know how it tastes hot out of the oven. I know that's fabulous. Yeah. We have been using those little sandwich rolls for our sandwiches all week, and they are amazing. They're so good. Oh. Yeah. You know, when we were reviewing that shoku pan, I said this may be a bread that is dangerous for me <laughs> to make on the regular. <laughs> but the built-in portion control of the roll, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, that might be the safer alternative here. As far as the roux mm-hmm. went, the method of the roux, yeah. was this more sticky? Was it more of an actual dough? Like how would you compare it to the udane that we made with our shoku pan? Completely different. The udane okay. that I made with the shoku pan was a ball of dough I could pick up and tear into pieces. Right. The tangzong was, I would say, like a white gravy or an Alfredo sauce consistency. I mean, it was ah, a liquid. It okay. was thick. Okay. Okay. But it was a liquid. There okay. was no, You could not have picked it up. You could not have torn it. Fascinating. I didn't do the math here, but I, if you recall, um, back when we first introduced the shoku pan, I made the comment about the difference between the water to flour ratio mm-hmm. in Yudane method versus the Tangzong method. And so I think that's why they were so yeah. radically different. The Yudane method is a one-to-one flour to liquid ratio. Yeah. Okay. And the Tangzong method is a one to five flour to water ratio. So, oh, yeah, vastly yeah. different. And I mean, vastly. you're adding a lot more melted butter and egg and other things with moisture there. So maybe that's one reason you don't need as much. But mm-hmm. that sounds great. Thank you for all of that field research, by well, the way. I was happy, mm. happy to do that. <laughs> and thanks to our listeners who brought milk bread to our attention. I mean, we are just still experimenting with it and having a blast. So, the best. We usually pride ourselves for being on trend, but on this one, we're, we're jumping on a little late, but that's okay. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Never too late. Never too late. Speaking of another trend, then, let's take a look at these Japanese chocolate truffles, the Nama truffles from food blogger June over at food blog June and Tonic. We love that title. Stefan, this was our bake along this week. Yep. I don't know about you, but I was a little nervous about making this recipe just because when you look at the photo and the portion size, (laughs) 
we're talking about a lot of chocolate. So yes. from the very start, I want to point out that I did cut this recipe down. How about you? I did exactly the same. Yes, the first sentence says, makes 100 to 120 pieces. Yes. If I may remind <laughs> listeners yet again, this week I also ate an entire loaf of bread. I probably did not need to bring 100. 100- <laughs> 20 pieces of chocolate into my home. This was an easy, easy recipe to have. That's what I did because, of course, weights, not just the measurements. Yes. That, of course, with your kitchen scale, just a breeze. I also, Andrea, did a little bit of a different thing. You know, I, I like dark chocolate, but I don't love it. So I did a blend of dark and milk. With my blend of milk and dark, I probably had more of a 65% dark. But that's just my preference in taste, and I'm sure you went 100% dark. Well, you'd be wrong there. Um. <laughs> what? Really? You know, it's so interesting. Part of it was a financial decision. So I had eaten through all of the bulk chocolate in my house. Um, I think I made an, a note to you where I said I have anxiety eating all of the chocolate in my house. I think I just said, same <laughs> so I actually had to pick up the chocolate at the my grocery store run. Okay. I went with that brand called Scharfenberger. Mm-hmm. Yep. Use they them. do have multiple types. They have the 62%, the 70%, and the 82%. And I just thought, you know, I know I love darker the better, but both my husband and my daughter like it less dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did not want to be the only one eating this stuff in my house. So I went with the 62%. Okay. They sell a nice big bulk bar, you know, at a reasonable price. And so that's why I went with that particular bar. Oh, that's so funny. So essentially, we came out at roughly the same cocoa percentage. I think so. Yeah. I did cut my recipe in fourths. So, you know, because yeah. like you said, if it made 100, I was like, I think 25 is enough. Mm-hmm. And so I only used 125 grams of chocolate instead of 500. Okay. The cream that I used was from that new creamery I've discovered that Alexandra Family Farms in California. It oh, was yes. a 40% heavy whipping cream. I decided just to go <laughs> all out on that. And I think that was go fabulous. For it. And same thing on my butter. I pulled out my Kerrygold and used my good European butter. So I really did try and use the very best ingredients I had on hand. I did not have any Kahlua or brandy. Perhaps I had done some anxiety drinking over the past months as well (laughs) because I thought I had both of those and I didn't have either. But what I did have was amaretto. And I decided, yeah, that was close enough. Mm. Plus it's optional. Yeah, I didn't have either of those liqueurs, and since I knew that my children were probably going to be the number one intaker of these chocolates, I just decided to skip it. And yeah, no big deal. But you know, you could also do like a creme de menthe, amaretto sounds good. You could do what else, a cassis. There's lots of ways you could play around with that if you do like including chocolate with your liqueur. Grand Marnier, yeah. Yeah, when I was doing some research on these chocolates, because, you know, when you first read the recipe and then you hear about how it's this thing in Japan and everyone buys them and stuff, I kind of thought, well, you know, I mean, once you've bought them and you've tried them, that's it. But then I realized, no, it's the flavoring add-ins. Oh, yeah. So many different varieties based on alcohol or other things that you could add into it to give it a different flavor. Yeah. It calls for one tablespoon. And again, cutting that in fourth, it was less than a teaspoon. So... I used the amaretto. I'm I'm glad I used it. I personally could not taste it in the finished product. Especially with the dark chocolate, that very strong flavor there. Yeah. It does seem uh, maybe just a trace. You're somehow 
having the suggestion of a nice Kahlua or whatever mm-hmm. liqueur. But yeah, I, I think if you want to skip it, go for it. Andrea, when we introduced these last episode in episode 180, you said, you know, they really seem like making a ganache. And initially, that's exactly like what it seems. It's really easy, very straightforward. You're chopping up your chocolate, melting your butter with your cream, and bringing that to a to a nice heat until it starts to steam significantly, and then pouring that hot mixture over the chocolate until it's melting, adding your liqueur then if you want. And then lining your baking tray with parchment and pouring the chocolate paste. And that is a very good word for what this was. Mm-hmm. I thought this was a texture I have not worked with before. It was, I don't want to say rubbery, but it was mm-hmm. it was kind of bouncy, maybe. Okay. That's the word. I don't know. How was your texture there? I found my texture to be very ganache-like. Okay. I wonder if the Hmm. little extra teaspoon of alcohol maybe made that a little, you know, how that tends to thin things out. Yeah, it didn't seem problematic. I just thought to myself, huh, well, that's interesting. Now, what container did you use to pour it into? So my baking trays, you guys know that my oven here is much smaller. So these were just my kind of cookie sheets, baking pans, and I just put them on a piece of parchment and then smoothed it out to a rectangle that was probably 25 by 25 centimeters. That's what I did. So yours was thick enough that you could actually smooth it out and not have it reach the edges. Correct. Oh, yes. yeah, no. Mine was mine was for sure just a, a liquid. It was, I mean, I oh, just- Oh, interesting. I poured it right into my pan. I use my mini okay. loaf pan, okay. which is, a, you know, like a three by six. No, I could work with it. I could, it wasn't like frosting texture, but it was not runny. Interesting. And what, what did you cut your recipe down by? Did you do a fourth or a half? I did a half. Oh, I wonder if doing more. Uh Uh-huh. Or there's a possibility I messed up on the math. Maybe I have to go back and look at that. Well, let's see how we get to our final texture here. Okay. Because then what you do is you freeze it for two to three hours. I, because of other life commitments, I went the full three hours. And then you take it out and you score it. I did two by two centimeter squares, and I thought that was a good size. I thought these are going to be really rich. I'm not going to want a huge candy bar size block of these. Right. So I scored it, and then I started cutting. Now, it's been frozen, but it came back up to room temp really quick, and then it got very hard to cut. Uh, It got too soft, so I put it back in the freezer a few times in between cutting my squares. Was that just me? I had a different process. So I, okay. you know, poured the chocolate into the pan, into the parchment paper. I put it in the freezer mm-hmm. and I didn't set a timer. I just thought I would remember to pull it out in three hours. So that night as I was laying in bed, <laughs> I went, oh no. June so I jumped tonic. out of bed. <laughs> I ran upstairs to the freezer. I pulled it out of the freezer and put it into the fridge because okay. I thought, well, I'm just, you know, who knows when I'll wake up and whether or not I'll remember. I don't want it to completely melt. Yeah. When I pulled it out of the fridge, I let it sit out for about 10 minutes. Yeah. And that's when I cut it. I kept dipping my knife in the hot boiling water. Yes. I cut mine into 12 rectangles and it, I thought it was the perfect size and they were just beautiful. I thought they were really pretty too. Mine were, mine remained very soft though, and a truffle is exactly what I thought. You know, had these been rolled into a ball and put into a little paper cup as a traditional truffle might be served, that's the texture I thought was exactly right. Mm-hmm. I think that dusting on that cocoa powder was really crucial so that you had something to grab onto. Yes. 
that the cocoa powder gets kind of wet and clumpy if you leave them in the fridge for a few days. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to dust the cocoa powder before I want to eat them. There's no reason to do it all at once if you don't need to. Oh, okay. I just dusted about a dozen for a neighbor. I took those to her. And then right before I was serving my family, I dusted a few more. But I don't I don't think there's any reason you need to do it all at once if you don't want to. And I didn't find that the clumping happened. Oh, interesting. Okay. I did pre-dust it. I used the King Arthur Flower Black Cocoa. I thought that was a really fun use of it because it's such a small amount. Oh, yeah. I then started regulating myself to where I was allowing myself one per day. So yep. mm-hmm. my husband was laughing at me. He's not a chocolate person, so it's not even a temptation for him. But Every night after our dinner, I'd go to the fridge and pull my little container out and get my one piece and put it on a little plate, you know, and then I would eat it, you know, after 10 or 15 minutes. And that really was perfect timing. My outer shell was a little bit harder, but my inside was still just very creamy, velvety. It just was amazing. Yeah. I'm wondering, Stefan, if when you mixed in, you said you mixed in some semi-sweet chocolate was that correct or I did darken milk and maybe it was the milk maybe Maybe it was the milk chocolate because it's higher butter fat and maybe that's Mm -hmm. that's what happened Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought it was wonderful I thought the texture was fabulous they were just very soft in fact when I gave them to my friend and neighbor I said you know if you're not going to eat these within the next 10 minutes you have to stick them back in the fridge or they're just going to be too soft yes I do think that with my texture was important no I thought they were fabulous I do you think that maybe mm-hmm. playing around with the chocolate and especially that milk chocolate maybe led to a softer texture? But I still thought they were fabulous. I do think a two by two centimeter is probably what you need. It was just, it's very rich. It has that wonderful mouthfeel. It's just so smooth and decadent. And I thought they were, I thought they were lovely. I did too. Well, so first week was white bread. Then we had chocolate. <laughs> very very popular month I'm telling you what we are having some great success I'm loving it and let's hope the same holds true for our third bake-along of Japanese sweets month Andrea this has just another potential to be a real fun and game-changing recipe this also I think is an Instagram or social media darling and it is the extra tall extra fluffy Japanese souffle pancakes is this another copycat or is this the actual recipe from someplace called Graham Cafe in Japan? That is a good question. I'm guessing it's a copycat because it's from yeah. a woman named Stephanie and her blog is I Am A Food Blog. I think it's a homage. It's definitely intended to be because the name of the recipe is the Graham Cafe and Pancakes recipe. Okay, yes. A little bit of background on the Graham Cafe It says it was founded in 2014 in Osaka, Japan, and in less than five years, Graham has opened over 60 outlets all over Japan, Thailand, Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia, Australia, and Canada, and then along comes Graham San Francisco. So that was in April of 2019 when they hit the U.S. Okay. It's an all-day brunch cafe, and they serve both savory and sweet pancake dishes and soups and salads and sandwiches and smoothies. And the premium souffle pancakes are their signature dish. And this is what listener Candy had posted in our Facebook group that first caught my attention, Mm. where I was like, huh, I wonder what these souffle pancakes are. Yes. Now, we are a big pancake household. we are too. 
but I had been using the same pancake recipe that I've used for, I don't know, maybe 20 years, which is Mark Bittman's essential pancake recipe. That's one of those ones that I could put on the list of recipes that I don't even need to look at the ingredients. I just know how to make it. Yeah. I haven't really considered making other pancake styles, and I thought, well, this is going to be kind of fun. And I do encourage you, if you're like me and you didn't know about these, either go on Instagram or go to the um, gramcafeusa.com website or the Graham Cafe website in your country, and you'll see pictures of these, and that'll give you a good idea of, of what you're trying to do and what it looks like, because the recipe is a bit complex when it comes to crafting the vessel needed to make it. So why don't we walk listeners through that? Yeah, I mean, the first step here is to make your parchment paper mold. So, you know, Andrea, I don't think we've ever done a straightforward souffle on the show, but lots of our bakers will have experience with that. And that, of course, is a baked concoction of egg whites that kind of puffs up in the dish. So that's what you're going for with these pancakes. And to make them puff and keep their shape, you have to make a little ring. You make that out of parchment about four inches around and you staple it. What's a stapleless stapler? Thank you for saying that, Stefan, because <laughs> I just read that. I'm like, what? This first ingredient, <laughs> I'm sorry, this first instruction so flummoxed me and it immediately plunged me back into my <laughs> elementary years anxieties where People were constantly sharing these craft projects, and I am not a crafty mom at all, and it took me kind of a few years to just admit that that's not my thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't sew. I don't knit. You know, I bake. That, that's my thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anything involving, like, crafting projects, I'm not good at. And when my child was young, I'd often pick up a project, and always in the first instruction, there would be something about a hot glue gun. And I would always say, I don't have a hot glue gun. Well, I don't have a stapleless stapler. So that's what, <laughs> when, I, when I read this instruction, that was my first thing. I don't have a stapleless stapler. I'm not going to buy a stapleless stapler. I imagine it's something that goes along with maybe scrapbooking or some other types of crafting. Mm. I just decided, since you're just using that to form the ring and then you're ripping the ring off, I mean, yeah, maybe some of the metal from the staple will touch your pancake for two seconds, but I'm not too worried about it. I think I can take that risk. Yeah. Listeners, I'm sure there's a huge intersection of baking and crafters. Let us know what is a staple, a stapler. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. I am... Going to attempt this, but uh, so far, just so you know, Mm -hmm. just reading step one made me anxious. So, (laughs) okay, all right. The rest of it actually seems okay. And that's when we get into the ingredients and the recipe. So, we're taking an egg yolk with half a tablespoon of sugar and whisking that until it's pale and frothy. Yeah. Then, we're going to mix in two tablespoons of milk. And then we're going to sift in three tablespoons of flour and just a quarter teaspoon of baking powder. Now, Stefan, this makes two pancakes and there's only three tablespoons of flour. This just couldn't be any different than my regular pancake recipe, which involves two cups of flour. (laughs) Totally. And if you notice, too, then you've got your white section coming next. So you've got two large egg whites, even though you've only used one egg yolk. So just take note of that. Uh And then you're whipping those with your cream of tartar until frothy and pale, adding a little bit of sugar. I mean, you're making a thick meringue. Yes. And then you're going to fold it into your yolks. Yes. Nothing about this is how I make flapjacks. No. Mm -mm. That's for sure. 
And then finally, you're getting to a part that does sound more familiar, which is when you are heating up your large nonstick frying pan or skillet, brushing with a little bit of oil. Then you've got your molds stapled together into the pan and filling them about 80% of the way. But you need to cover the pan and cook for six to eight minutes. Oh, you know what? Now she says if you have a griddle, I do have a griddle. But how do I cover it? Right. And I'm glad we're walking through this recipe because I saw her say a lid with a pan. Mm. But in my head, I still was thinking, well, I'll I'll use my griddle. And it wasn't until I read really carefully in step six, you need to cover and cook for six to eight minutes. Mm -hmm. And then she does say if you have a crepe maker or a griddle with a lid Uh that will cover the entire thing without touching the pancakes, you can use that. But I don't have that. So I am going to have to use a pan with a lid. I tell you, Andrea, staple staplers, griddles with lids. (laughs) I'm learning so much. (laughs) If you look on the Graham Cafe website, there is the cutest picture. What they have is a griddle, right? A big restaurant-size industrial griddle like you would do the mounds of bacon and eggs and all that sort of stuff. And then they have these little domed lids. I think of them as the – you know if you're in a hotel and you order food service? how it comes with that little metal domed lid. Oh, yeah. So that's what I think she means by a griddle with a lid. These are all individual little lids that, at the cafe at least, they're putting over each pancake. I do not have those, and I'm not going to purchase those. (laughs) I don't have that either. But you know what? This only makes two, so I can definitely put this in a large skillet that I do have a lid for. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think an important note here at the very end, she says – I was worried that the parchment wouldn't be enough to hold the batter. So I made some extra foil support rings as well. Good point. I might take Stephanie up on that and reinforce my Mm, rings. Okay. Good suggestion. Okay. We're going to learn a lot this week. Yes. And (laughs) that's what it's all about. And hopefully have some delicious pancakes as well. So remember, we will have a link to all of the recipes, the Japanese chocolate truffles from June at June and Tonic. And then this week's bake-along is the extra tall and fluffy souffle pancakes from Stephanie at IamAFoodBlog.com. And we'll put those in the show sheets for this episode, episode 181, on our website, PreheatedPodcast.com, as well as our Facebook listeners group. Stefan, back in episode 179, I introduced you to Anmitsu, the iconic Japanese dessert that has small cubes of Anko jelly agar, sliced fruit, and green tea ice cream, all topped with a black sugar syrup. Do you remember that? (laughs) How could I forget that? It sounds like such an explosion of flavors and colors and ingredients. Yes, indeed it is. I want to go back to that list of ingredients and talk a little bit more about Anko. Okay, so if I remember correctly, Anko is red bean paste, right? That's right. And I believe you said Anko is made from azuki beans, which are naturally sweet. Oh, five stars for a good memory. (laughs) Yes, azuki beans were used in Japan long before sugarcane or processed sugar came their way. Historically, the red beans came from China, when the Chinese used them along with minced meat as a filling in steamed buns. Mm. Around the year 600, the buns were being made in temples for the monks in Japan, and since the monks were vegetarian, they used only the red beans. I love an ingredient almost 1,500 years old. (laughs) In fact, Andrea, we've talked about red bean paste on the show before. Way back in one of our very first Globetrotting Gourmets in episode 30, we were discussing frozen treats and red bean paste or Anko ice cream came up. 
I know my most frequent way of eating red bean paste has been in anpan, which is a soft bun filled with the bean paste. I've also had a mochi filled with red bean paste, which I now know is called daifuku. But seriously, this ingredient is used in almost every type of Japanese pastry, from mooncake fillings to a topping on shaved ice to taiyaki, a fish-shaped cake. One article I read by Tatiana Bautista said, Think of it as a dependable way to turn the plainest of things into a dessert, like a lone slice of toast or a cup of coconut milk. It's like the Asian answer to Nutella. (laughs) Well, my kids are obsessed with Nutella, so maybe they would like this. Is it something I can make at home? Yes, and it sounds like it would be easy as long as you can find the azuki beans. Mm. They're also sometimes called adzuki beans or red mung beans. And while they are red, don't confuse them with kidney beans. Kidney beans are twice the size of azuki beans, and they're shaped like kidneys. Right. Azuki beans are small, and they have a sweet, nutty flavor to them. You can buy them dry, and unlike other dried beans, you don't have to soak them before you cook them. Oh, so more like lentils. Yes. They cook on the stove in under an hour, and then you can sweeten them with sugar in a one-to-one ratio. So if you have 100 grams of beans, you'll boil them, drain them, and mash them along with 100 grams of sugar. You can leave them slightly chunky with bits of bean, and many people mention liking that texture better. It's also possible to remove the bean husk by sieving them after cooking, but before sweetening, and that will give you a red paste that is much smoother. But I have to admit, that sounds like a lot more work to me. (laughs) Yeah. And what if I can't get the azuki beans? From what I read, it sounds like you're actually better off trying to find a canned version of azuki beans, and I can confirm I found those in my co-op, so I know at least I could get the canned ones. Ah. You're better off doing that than you are substituting other types of beans for the azuki. And you can also look for a canned red bean paste that's pre-made, so it's already got the sugar in it. Ah, and are there any other things to do with those beans? I was intrigued by one other recipe. It came from Cynthia Chen over on Food 52. She makes a red bean topping that you simply put on top of ice cream or shaved ice. The beans are still largely intact, boiled tender in water and sugar, and preserved with syrup. Mmm, it sounds yummy and easy. I'll include a link in our show notes for this episode, which is episode 181. Listeners, do you have any experience with red bean paste? Drop us a note at host at preheatedpodcast.com or share a picture on Instagram or Facebook where we're at preheatedpod. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new shows every Monday morning, and next week, we'll see if those tall and fluffy Japanese pancakes started our day on a sweet note, and we'll introduce some sweet and savory black sesame cookies. Finally, in a resource roundup, we'll run down some of the best places for you to continue exploring these exciting Japanese desserts. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please rate, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Our thoughts are with you and your families and loved ones. We hope our show has provided a bit of respite when you've needed it most. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams.
Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do